Good to see you all this morning. Glad you're all here. Are we all okay? Are we alive? Okay, good. Half the battle, right? We're here. We're alive. It's good. It's good to see you all this morning. We are, uh, uh, we are uh, in the middle of a series, actually, that we began last week called I Am, in which we are looking at and studying the I Am statements of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Jesus' statement that I am the bread of life. And if you remember, the context of that statement was when he had just fed 5,000 plus people. Uh, 5,000 men we certainly know, but certainly we think that there were more than that because that doesn't include the women and children. And if you add those in, anywhere from 10 to 15 plus thousand people. And what we learned last week is the fact that not only does Jesus take care of us now and forever, but really the essence of that I am statement. That the I am statement that we learned last week is that idea of it being a verb. In other words, when Jesus uses that I am statement, as when Moses encountered God at the burning bush and Moses learned from God who God is, that I am that it really means in many ways the causer of things, the sustainer of things, the one that, who is self-sufficient, who doesn't need anyone or anything in his life to sustain him. He is able to do that. And I don't know about you, but um, I, I take great comfort in the fact that God is not sitting around watching things. You know, he's not up in heaven watching things going on on the TV, and he's like, hey, Gabriel, if you're going to the kitchen, why don't you bring me back something to drink, kind of thing. He's not doing that. He's, not, he's just not saying, hey, look at this, Michael. Look what they're doing down there. Isn't that just crazy? I mean, this makes for good reality television, doesn't it? I, you know, God isn't up there just kind of watching things go along, is he? He is the causer. He is actively involved. He is, by his name simply of I am, it's that verb. He is actively engaged with what is going on in our world today. And I know that at times maybe we have felt or maybe we have believed at certain points, certainly within the last year, if not more, um, with COVID and everything else going on, and we have looked at our world, we've looked at our country, and we've looked at things going on, and we thought, where is God? It's hard to see Him in these things, isn't it? Sometimes with all that is happening... And oftentimes, it's hard stuff. Even, there, I say, negative stuff. It's hard to see where are you, God, in the midst of everything that is going on. And the reality is, what we have started last week, and we're going to continue this week, is that God is still here. He is still engaged. He is still causing things. He is still actively involved in our lives and in our world. Which, let's be honest, it's His world. We just put all our muddy, disgusting fingerprints all over it. It's His world. This is still His world. And we are His people. He is still actively involved. And if you get nothing from today's message, I hope that you will just know that truth and let that truth settle in your hearts this morning. God is not distant. He has not written any one of us off. He has certainly not written any one of this world or any of one particular country off. He just simply hasn't. He is still here, actively involved. We just sometimes miss it. Or we just simply don't see, and that's understandable, the bigger picture until we look back and we think, oh, there you were, God. 
You know, it's interesting when we look at the Gospels, I mean, we're not the only ones who struggled with that. The apostles, the disciples, those who actually walked with Jesus. If you read the Gospels at certain points, they will throw phrases in there. You know, at that time, they didn't understand, but it wasn't until his resurrection that all of a sudden they began to piece together what it was that Jesus was doing because they too went through tough times, didn't they? They too questioned, what are we doing here? We gave up our very lives to follow Jesus and Jesus is going to the cross and dying? Seriously? This man that we spent three years traveling with, giving up our profession, leaving our families behind, doing this stuff, and he's going to the cross, and he's going to die, and he's leaving us? And then what you see is the beauty of what Jesus was doing, but for the disciples, they could only see it as they looked back, and they said, ah, I get it. My hope and my prayer this morning is that no matter what, is that someday, and maybe we hope that that day will be sooner rather than later, right? That we can look back and we can say, ah, God, that's what you were doing. I can see it now. We may not see it perfectly, but at least hopefully we can look back and see some semblance of the fact that God was still working. God is still active. He has not given up and said, forget this. These people are really messed up, way beyond anything I could ever do to redeem them. It's just simply not true. All right? And today's statement that we're going to look at, I hope, pours gasoline on that fire of truth. I hope that today's statement that we're going to look at just kind of magnifies and amplifies that truth even more so. And not only that, I hope that we discover what our role is in what Jesus shares in this statement that we're going to look at today. And that statement is this, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Man, isn't it just beautiful? I am the light of the world. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of light of the world, when you hear that statement. Oftentimes what I think of, and oftentimes what we look at when we look at scriptures, is that the very first thing, when you open up Genesis, the very first thing that God speaks, He speaks light. He speaks light. What is really interesting about the book of Genesis and how light comes into this picture is the fact that Genesis opens up. And if you read the very first verse in Genesis, it says the earth or the world was formless and void. And there was nothing there. It was like this, this black pit, if you will. How I interpret that, how I understand that, is the fact that even before our world was created, things had already taken place that were well beyond our comprehension. One of the biggest was, I believe, Satan had already rebelled against God, and a third of the angels had already gone with, with Satan and were cast out. In other words, there was already fallenness present. There was this chaos, this void, this darkness, this blackness, that all of a sudden now, those things that God created, the angels themselves, a third of them said, you know what? We're not going to worship you. We're not going to honor you anymore. We're not going to be with you anymore. We're going to go and do our own stuff. And how much that must have broken God's heart. How much that must have pained him to realize that. But because God is love, he cannot help but create. He cannot help but to create out of his love, and in doing so, I believe he created out of the midst of that darkness, that dark time, he said, 
Let there be light. Let there be light. And the light shone in the darkness. And of course we know parallel in the New Testament. And the darkness, what? Did not overcome it. The darkness did not overcome it. When God spoke light into this world, if there's anything we also need to know is this. That light, nothing will overcome it. Nothing. As dark as we think that this world is, and it is dark, there are dark things in our world. There is no doubt about that. There are things in our world that are going on that are absolutely horrific. Things we could not Things we could never even possibly imagine. But if we are attuned to our own hearts, we, are, we, we cannot excuse ourselves and the possibility that the depth of wickedness in each and every single one of us, in humans in general, is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the things that have been done in this world, just even in the last hundred and some odd years, the 20th century is oftentimes recognized as the bloodiest century in all of humanity. We killed more people in the 20th century than any other century prior to that. We did horrific things to people. And it's just terrible. And yet, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. So this kind of light that we're going to look at today is a special light. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this is not some pithy saying. Jesus is going to really share some specific things. And now obviously, when we think of light, we also think of the idea that God comes in and shines light in on sin, on our brokenness, on things that are wrong, right? No doubt that that is certainly the umbrella by which I think that is present and true about that statement. However, what we're going to hopefully learn from today's passage is two very specific things and how that light shines into each and every one of us. And we've got to determine what we're going to do with that light. We've got to make a decision about what we're going to do when that light shines in on us and exposes things about us that we may not necessarily like to have exposed, right? Um, You know, it goes back to even childhood, right? Whenever we did anything wrong, right? Or when I ever did anything wrong and I knew I was guilty, you know, the first thing I would go and do was what Adam and Eve did when they did something wrong. The very first time. What did they go and do? Hide. Hide. Try to cover up. I had a blanket, right? You had a blanket and you put yourself underneath that blanket and you pretended like no one can see me under here. Right? I'm invisible. No one will see. Well, that's simply not going to work. I mean, give me a break, Right? That doesn't, but as a child, you, you, are, you just know you're guilty. Even as a child, we know we're guilty of sin. And we try to run and hide. As adults, we're just much better at covering it up. We just become more sophisticated, more expert, if you will, more of an expert, if you will, at covering up sin. But it's the same thing. We're covering up. Whether it's under a blanket as a child or through some sort of other means as an adult, it's the same principle, it's the same concept. And the reality is, is that that light exposes things in our lives that we may not want to have exposed. And today, although certainly under the umbrella of the fact that, in general, light exposes darkness, and certainly in this case, Christ will expose things in our lives, and particularly sin, there are two ways, two things that we're going to look at today's passage, that he does that. Two things that we need to realize about this. 
And the way that we're going to go about this passage this morning is unique, I think. Remember that out of all of the I am statements, there is usually some teaching, something that Jesus does, whether it is some miracle or otherwise, to highlight that statement. Either he says the statement and then does the miracle, or he does the miracle and then says the statement. Well, today we're in for a special treat. Because we're going to look at, not only does he do something, then he says the statement, then he does another thing. So that statement is going to be sandwiched in between two things that Jesus does. And my hope is we're going to learn the two ways in which Jesus' light exposes things in our lives that we need to wrestle with. And my hope is that we will respond differently than those to whom Jesus exposed light into their lives, okay? So are you ready to go down this primrose path? Yeah. (laughs) Careful. Careful what you wish for, okay? So here's the first thing that we need to realize that light exposes, and it's this. Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. Now, this is highlighted in the following story in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. If you have any experience or any time in the scriptures, this will probably be a very familiar story to you. And it starts off this way. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. Now, here's the thing. I I love the fact that John begins, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did Jesus go there? Mount of Olives is a special place in the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. It was usually the place where Jesus, when he was near Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, would go and pray. I have no doubt that probably he was doing the same thing here. Really important, possibly, to understand why he was praying, because here's what was going on. So he goes back to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. Get a sense of this scene. Let's pause here. I I don't want us to simply gloss over this without understanding the absolute thing that was going on here with these religious leaders and scribes. Jesus is teaching people, and in the midst of his teaching, real life cuts in, often does. And here's the real thing. The scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman, and they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In other words, they caught her in the very act of adultery. And they bring this woman, and where do they place this woman? Not off to the side, right? Not off into some extra side room so as to try to protect her dignity, whatever is left of it. No, no, no. What they do to her is they put her in the center of everyone. Think about that. Have you ever been placed in the center where everyone was looking at you, right? Something that maybe in, in grade school or high school that you had to give an answer and the teacher calls on you and says, what is the answer to that math problem? And all the eyes are on you because you know what? You don't know the answer. <laughs> oh, I've been there many times. I hate math, Right? I realize math is necessary, and I use it, and I have a calculator. 
and get through it just fine, you know, kind of thing. But nonetheless, think about that. This woman was caught in the very act, is now brought before all these people, stood in the center of all these people, and has all of these eyes on her. What must she be thinking? More than that, what must she be feeling? Embarrassment? Shame? She has just been exposed. Just been exposed. Interesting, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, Now, Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone such women. Well, they've got the law a little wrong here. But this is what Jesus is going to expose in just a minute. But they're trying to trap him. And the way they're trying to trap him is this. is Jesus says, hey, yeah, guess what? The law of Moses says to stone her. Go ahead and stone her. Well, if, they, if he does that, then he is breaking Roman law because only the Romans had the right to put someone to death. But if Jesus says, no, 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 let the woman go, then he is breaking Moses' law. And if that's the case, the religious leaders can go against Jesus and say, well, see, guess what? He is not whom he says he is. What does the scripture says he does? And this is really interesting. He stoops down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to all of them, He was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, you know what? Out of that whole story, you know what I'm most focused on? What was he writing? What in the world was he writing? Was he just doodling? I don't know. We don't know. It's not important. If it was, we would have known. But John doesn't give us that information. When they heard it, verse 9, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was now left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Interesting that as soon as Jesus says these words, he was out without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone, that Jesus exposed in that moment the fact of what they were all about, their motives and their hearts. That's what he exposed in that moment. In realizing, as religious leaders, that they too were sinners, they one by one, and that's interesting, one by one, not in mass, but just one by one, slowly, painfully, you could just almost hear the stones thunk, 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 as they hit the ground beginning with the older ones who set an example because if the older ones recognized that I'm, you know, clearly I'm not without sin, the younger ones followed. Until there was no one left, left except Jesus and this woman. And now what must this woman be thinking? What is Jesus going to do to me? What's going to happen now? It's just the two of us. But verse 10 says this, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Jesus exposed in that moment the heart and the motives of the religious leaders, the scribes, those who should have known what they were all about. And in doing so, he exposed in their own lives the fact that, guess what? 
Are you just simply interested in going around and telling people you are going to hell? Condemnation is an incredibly powerful word because behind it is the idea and the concept and the reality of divine judgment. There is no coming back from condemnation. That is it. Sealed. Done. And in that moment, Jesus exposed their hearts, exposed their motives, and said, you all brought this woman, not so that she would have any chance of redemption, but that you could make an example of her, and more than that, shove her out forever from God's presence by having her stoned to death, condemning her, bringing down what is known as divine judgment. He exposed their hearts in that moment. And he goes on, and it's in this context that what happens next is this, in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is the light that Jesus came to bring. Is not a light to condemn us, but a light to save us. Not a light that says, guess what? You are now going to hell. You are now forever out of God's presence. But rather to say, come to the light and be saved. That is what Jesus exposed. A complete turn of events and understanding of God. When I think of that, I think of the fact that how many of us, how many Christians are still hanging on to that belief of what the Pharisees and the scribes hung on to. And they're going around and they're telling people, you're going to hell. You are beyond redemption. You are going to hell. There is no hope for you. Imagine being in this world today and knowing that there is stuff that's going on that isn't right and it's hard. And then instead of finding some sort of peace and comfort in the church, all you find is now people piling on to already the guilt, shame, and everything else that you carry. It's just terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. And here's the thing, is that Jesus in this moment revealed their hearts and in this moment I think when we are confronted with people who are actively involved in sin, it also exposes us in that moment. What are we believing? What are our motives? What is in our hearts? Do we believe that God can also save that person who is caught in sin? Or do we believe that there's no hope for them? Those are the times when light really exposes what we really believe is when we're confronted with really tough stuff. Really unbelievable stuff. That's when all of a sudden now we're confronted with it. Let me ask you a question. We're in the middle of a presidential election, aren't we? We're just a few weeks out before this thing is decided, aren't we? Less than, uh, I think, two weeks, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come, right? Uh, um, you know, how many of us look at those who might have differing political views and we look at them and we judge them, not with just some sort of superficial judgment, but we really believe that 
some sort of divine judgment that we believe there's no hope for them. What about those that behave in such ways that we look at and we think there is no hope for that person? They are well beyond any sort of redemption. It's in those moments when we're confronted with those kinds of situations that that light of Jesus exposes us and we say, guess what? Do we really believe Jesus came to save and not condemn? Or not? That's where we get to be whether or not choosing to follow Jesus or not. It's in those moments. It's really, really difficult. It was really difficult for the religious leaders because here in verse 13 it says this, So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself and your testimony is not true. In other words, they're discrediting him. They're discrediting him. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one sees them because his hour had not yet come. In other words, when exposed to the light, when exposed to what the Pharisees and the scribes really believed, and their hearts were exposed, and their motives were exposed, they, instead of accepting that light, did what? Ah, Jesus you're not really who you say you are. Not true. Not correct. It's not what it is. How many times when we are exposed about what we were really believing, what, we, what our hearts are, oftentimes discredit that source and say, yeah, you know what? They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're thinking. That's what the Pharisees did here. They tried to discredit Jesus. And Jesus spends a good amount of time trying to help them understand, no, no, I am who I say I am. I am the light of the world. And I've come here not to condemn you, but to save you. Think about that, church. Jesus has come to save every single person. Republican, Democrat, Independent. Has come to save every person. Those who buy at Starbucks and those who don't. Right? Jesus has come to save every single person, those who drive a Prius and those, whom, those who own a Prius look down on others for not driving the same. Right? Those who drive Teslas and those who don't. Jesus has come to save. Those whom we think nothing of but Jesus can't stop thinking about he came to save. Jesus came. Do we believe that, church? And therefore, anybody who is caught and who is entangled by sin, do we look at that person and we say, Jesus came to save you. Come. I want you to meet this Jesus. I want that light of Jesus to shine in your life. Or are we the ones who go out there and say, you know what? There is no hope for you. I will pray for you, but I've got to be honest with you, I don't think there's much hope for you. That's what we have to wrestle with. 
Here's what Jesus says. And this is what Jesus did with this woman caught in adultery. I have come to save you, not to condemn you. We are not beyond saving yet. There will come a time. And I think sometimes we as Christians get those times mixed up. We think it's now. It's not. Jesus has not yet come back. So therefore, salvation is still here. Salvation is still possible. There will come a time when that is no longer the option. But it is not yet. Jesus came to save everyone. Do we believe that? So that's the first thing. And let me just say this real quick, because sometimes I think in churches we get confused about this. Jesus talks about, and we understand that we are not to judge. We are not to condemn. And oftentimes in churches there is some confusion over this. Let me say this. Condemnation shuts out the light. Okay? We understand that. That is divine judgment. When churches, however, have to practice oftentimes correction. It is not condemnation. It is church discipline. There is a difference. Discipline seeks restoration. Discipline is trying to get people, Christians, who have gone off on their own and have in some ways disobeyed Jesus to get them to come back to that light and to once again be obedient to Him. That's discipline. That is not condemnation. Condemnation says there's no hope. Discipline says there is hope. So hear me when I say this. Although we will not condemn, that doesn't mean we won't seek discipline if and when necessary. There is a difference. As parents, I hope I never communicated this to my children when I discipline them. And by the way, I'll be honest with you, we never, I shouldn't say never, we rarely spanked our kids. It didn't work. It was largely ineffective. I mean, our son would laugh. That's not the response I wanted. You know, um, you know, most, uh, the girls were different, well, except for one. Um, I won't say who. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, the whole point of discipline, he wasn't to stare at them. There is no hope in your life. You are lost forever. There is, I, I just reject you utterly. That is not why we discipline children, isn't it? I hope it isn't. It's rather to say, son, daughter, what you are doing is wrong. Please stop doing this and come back. Come back. I love you. There are times when we have to go through those things that Jesus disciplines us not to shut us out, but to again turn our hearts back to Him. There is a difference. Jesus wasn't saying don't discipline. He was saying don't condemn. Don't condemn. Does that make sense? Now here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. It's this that the light of Jesus exposes. The cause of your suffering and my suffering or suffering is, in general is not what matters, but rather God's work within your suffering. Let me highlight this. And this is the second thing Jesus does. John chapter 9, verse 1, he says this. As Jesus, he, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he, would have, that he would be born blind. Now, that was a common belief. They see a person who was born blind, or it could have been even a person who was lame, couldn't walk, couldn't speak, or whatever else. And the first idea or the first question out of the disciples' mouths is, well, who sinned, right? Automatically, we, there's an assumption there that sin caused this to happen. That somewhere along the line, this man is blind because somehow 
his parents either committed sin or he committed sin. You might ask yourself, well, how could he have committed sin if he was born blind? Well, there was a belief among rabbis that even in the womb, we can sin. And one story that they turn to is Jacob and Esau. And where it says in Genesis that they were squirming or wrestling with each other in their mother's womb. And that was viewed as sin right there. Right there, there was already tension between them, right? Um, and so there was this somewhat belief that, yes, you can sin while in your mother's womb. Think about that. That you could actually sin while you were in your mother's womb. And that was somewhat a common belief. And so no wonder the disciples would ask, hey, who sinned? This man or this man's parents? In other words, is it personal sin that he committed or is it generational sin? Something that his parents did that now he is suffering from. Right? Common belief. How many times do we believe that ourselves? Someone has suffering, and the first question that we might ask is, why? What'd they do? Why? What happened? What'd you do? You had to have done something to cause your suffering. It's the same thing. We do that, and it's not uncommon. But listen to what Jesus says, and he says this, neither... It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this man did nothing and his parents did nothing. That's not what caused his suffering. It was instead, regardless of what caused it, what was most important was not what the cause and effect of the suffering is, but rather what God does in the midst of He was trying to completely turn their perspective around. He was shedding light on a belief that, quite frankly, isn't accurate. Isn't always true. I mean, oftentimes, the book of Job, which is sometimes by theologians, some theologians rather, believe that it was the first book written. It may have been. We don't know. If it was, what a beautiful book to be written first. But the whole story of Job is what? Job has his family taken away, has his health taken away, has his you know, home taken away, all of that kind of stuff. And the very first thing that his friends come in, and after sitting with him and being quiet for a while, the very first thing his friends start to say is, well, you must have done something to anger God. What did you do? You had to have done something. I mean, holy cow, are you suffering? You must have deserved this. You must have done something to get this because... There is no reason why you should be suffering this way. And they go through all of this reasoning, beautiful reasoning, right, as to why Job is suffering. And Job says, listen, I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I have done nothing wrong. There is nothing I have done to ever deserve this. And at the end, how does Job end up? Is It ends up by saying, guess what? Job did nothing wrong. The point wasn't the fact of cause and effect, the point was to see what God does in the midst of our suffering. That even though we may suffer, and even though there may be no reason for that suffering, except we just live in a broken world, that's not the point. The point is, is that we can experience God working in the midst of our suffering if we can only realize it and be attuned to it. That's the point. That's the point. And so Jesus, when he all of a sudden now shines not only as he did before on hearts and motives, but here he is now shining lights on our messed up thinking theologically. How much damage has been done in people's lives because in the midst of their suffering, we come to them and we say, what'd you do? 
you had to have done something. And we try to look for a reason. Oh, we've got to figure out why this happened to you. We've got to figure out why this happened to you. We've got to figure out what went wrong here. We've got to figure out what, what's wrong with you. You know, what's, what did you do kind of thing? That's not the point. The point here is, look what God can do in the midst of that suffering. And this is the beautiful thing. And he says this, Jesus says this in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now this is a beautiful, beautiful thing that Jesus just said. Because what he is saying here is in the midst of this, is he is saying, guess what? There is still work to be done. And he doesn't say him himself. He says what? We. We. There is a world out there. There are people out there today who believe that the reason why they are suffering is because of some specific thing they did. There is some sort of cause and effect relationship here. And there are people out there who need to know that's not the point. God is here with you. He is walking with you through this. See what He will do in the midst of your suffering. There are people out there today who believe that they have done something wrong. Right? Even today, one of the common beliefs, right, is karma. What is karma? Do good things, good things will happen. Do bad things, bad things will happen. Right? And in fact, there are religions built on this whole concept. Right? Hinduism and Buddhism and all this kind of stuff. And basically, in that whole idea that is wrapped around this idea of karma is this idea of reincarnation. You know what the whole point of reincarnation is? You keep repeating it until you get it right. It's Groundhog Day. Oh, you messed up in this life. Well, you get to have to try it again until you get it right. And it's only when you finally get it right that you finally have arrived. Jesus cuts through all that and says, that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You don't get do-overs. Thank goodness. Would you want to come back again? I mean, I, I love Lazarus. Give me, I mean, I love the story of Lazarus, but think about that. Lazarus had to die again after Jesus raised him from the dead. I mean, seriously. He was dead, dead, in the grave, dead, dead, you know? And he got raised from the dead and had to go and live life and then die again. Oh, seriously? I got to go through this again? You know? No, 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 no. Jesus says that is simply not the way the world works. You will never get it right. And that's not the point. The point is, look what I will do in the midst of your suffering. Look at what I will do in the midst of your suffering. And not only that, we as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, have a responsibility as Jesus shared when he said this, we must work the work of him who sent me as long as it is day. Brothers and sisters, it is still day. Jesus is still here through the power of His Holy Spirit. It is not night yet. It is still day. We have work to do. And He involves us in it. In their book, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Can Get It Back, the authors shared a little bit about, I think, what it means to kind of be light in this world and to expose just wrong theology and hearts and motives of people 
and how we can do that in such a way that it brings light, that we can continue to do the works that God has called us to do. And they say this in their book. Why did the early church succeed where we are now failing? How did they transform the Western world in such a relatively short amount of time? They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket, they didn't boycott, and they didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in their abandoned uh, children and babies. They helped their sick and wounded. They restored dignity to the slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. And after a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about these Christians and who they were and who was the God they represented. Without confrontation, protest, or debate, love did its work. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I, I just can't help to think that in the world that we live in, when there is just a lot of screaming and a lot of arguing and a lot of debate, needless debate, air-wasting debate, truly air-wasting debate, over things. That the way that God calls us as Christians to be light in those situations is kindness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit type thing. Just to go about and just say, man, I love you. Just to go about and say, the reason why I love you is because Jesus loves you. Because if I was just up to me, I probably wouldn't. I'll be honest. But because of Jesus, I love you. Because Jesus loves you. I uh, heard a pastor share this, and I thought this was great. You young men and those who are married and those who are going to get married and those who want to get married, listen to this. Okay? Listen to this. pastor shared this, uh, and I thought it was just fantastic. Chances are, if you are married, um, and, and those of you who are married, you're probably going to shake your heads on this. At some point, your spouse is going to turn to you and say, Honey, why do you love me? But before that, they're going to ask, do you love me? Right? And of course, you're going to say, well, yes, I do love you. Of course I love you. And they're going to say, why do you love me? I want to give you the answer that will get you out of the doghouse every single time. Do I have your, answer? Do I have your attention? This is going to, this is, because this is so important, because this is the love that Jesus has for us. And this is what you can say when your spouse asks you this question. And it's this. I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. Right? Oftentimes when that's asked a question, men, we oftentimes fall into saying things that maybe aren't very good. Honey, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Why do you love me? Well, because you're beautiful. Well, because you have a good income. Well, because you have a great job. Well, because you have good, you know, you, you, you parent the kids so well. Well, because you're a wonderful cook. And, and certainly your spouse will take that in and be appreciative. But if they're smart enough, they'll say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Those are all conditional things. Someday it's going to come that I, I may not be beautiful anymore. Someday I may burn your food, right? Someday I may lose my job and everything else. And in those moments, would you still love me? No, no, the answer is I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you because that's the way Jesus loves us. It's not because what we can bring to him. It's not because what we can give to him. It's not because we're serviceable. 
That's not why Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. That's it. That's it. That's the light of the world. That's the light that he came. That's the light he shines. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. That's it. That is it. I want to end this morning with some lyrics. I was listening to a song this morning, and I've listened to this song countless times. And, and for some reason, as I was preparing for the message this morning, I stopped as I was listening to this song, and I said, wow, these are really, this is really pretty neat. The song is called Sun. That's simply what the name of the song is, Sun. Um, and this is the lyrics with it. This is what the song says. With golden string, our universe was clothed in light. Pulling at the seams, our once barren world now brims with life. That we may fall in love every time we open our eyes, I guess space and time takes violent things, angry things, and makes them kind. We are the, we are the dust of 